Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ring of Fire, The Al Franken Show, Politically Direct, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann. author, journalist, and national correspondent for the Atlantic Monthly for over 20 years. He's with us to talk about his new book, Blind into Baghdad, a collection of his award-winning series of cover stories in the Atlantic about the Iraq War. Jim, welcome back to Ring of Fire. It's a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you again, Bobby. Thanks very much. Before we talk about your book, you've got another just fascinating piece about where we should go from here in Iraq, and you've interviewed over 100 of the top experts around the country and around the world. One of the points that may surprise a lot of people, you put yourself in a very kind of compelling way in the dilemma that an al-Qaeda strategist would be in today, and the capacity to really mount the kind of attacks that will continue to give them the prestige that the 9-11 attack gave them and their best hope of victory is if we do something to destroy ourselves and you make a very very compelling point that that's what the united states should look look out for you interview a an australian terrorism expert called kilcullen he makes a, a really interesting point which is that historically terrorists have have done very little to challenge the existence of nations now, with the exception maybe of Northern Ireland or Israel, but all of the anarchists who were active during the early part of the 20th century killed fewer than 2,000 people. And what you're saying is that we're in the same kind of jeopardy. Uh, the actions that we take to counterterrorism, that's the only thing that's going to put the existence of our country in jeopardy. You have very perceptively um, summed up what it took me a long time to figure out in talking to, to these people. And there were, I guess there were two big surprises for me in the course of doing all these interviews. One was the consensus that al-Qaeda central itself, you know, Osama bin Laden's organization, which actually attacked us, has been hurt pretty badly. That, that, that as we'll get to in a moment, you know, there still is an th- ongoing threat of terrorism. But the, the group that attacked us, we can reasonably say we've done some damage to. You know, they can't have their meetings anymore, et cetera. And the fact the London police were able to penetrate this latest operation with the airlines as a sign of how things have changed. On the other hand, these same people said that, that there is an ongoing threat of, of terrorism, but, it, but it's the fact that it's one we're bringing on ourselves by imprecise and overreactions to, uh, to threats we get. And so what everybody said is very similar to this very recent CIA report, that the main fuel for terrorism now is, is the Iraq War. That's where the next generation of not al-Qaeda, but its descendants and copycats you know, are sort of coming from. So by controlling more carefully the way we react and, and being sure that we respond, as Americans and not as some kind of police state. That's the way we can best defend ourselves in the long run against uh, the damage that terrorism can do. One of the points you make is that Islamic populations within the United States and the Arab or Mideastern populations in the United States are very different. In Europe, the Mideastern populations really form an underclass. In our country, they're much more assimilated. Um, they have higher income levels, higher levels of college graduation, and they have much more a greater loyalty patriotism towards our country. This also was a surprise to me in the reporting that America's Muslim population has been its first line of defense because second and third generation Muslim Americans, they will say, well, I'm a Muslim, but also I'm an American, and the same for Arab Americans, Some, many of them Muslims, some not. So, you know, obviously the U.S. has problems with the Islamic world in general, and there are increasing tensions within America's Muslim minority because of fears about you know, discrimination of various sorts. But on the whole, the degree of sort of perceived patriotism, willing to help out with community defense efforts and all the rest, America's uh, Muslim and Arabic minorities are, are just night and day different from those in in Europe. Why does al-Qaeda hate us? Well, if you take al-Qaeda at its word, the words of Osama bin Laden, which have been numerous and voluminous over the last 10 or 12 years, and those of Ayman uh, uh, al-Zawahiri, who is his uh, associate, you know, what they say is they hate the impact of the United States on their part of the world. You know, I mentioned in there a poll showing that like 6% of the world's Muslims support Osama bin Laden's vision of a medieval world. But what they do have tremendous support for is a perceived imbalanced policy between Israel and 
the Palestinians from the U.S. point of view, support of various corrupt regimes throughout the Middle East. That doesn't mean we have to do everything they want, but it does mean that the president's assertion of they hate us for who we are, just uh, there's no evidence to support that. frustrate you as much as it frustrates me that the level of dialogue about Iraq is is so primitive no you know what I'm saying when you when you hear like when you hear debates uh, on, on on TV between senators or something it just seems like there's just uh, and and when you hear the president talk Oh, well, you know, when you hear the president talk, you know, you have all kinds of, uh, of emotions. I, I guess it's worth actually cataloging emotions you get from different members of the, of the administration. The Vice President Cheney, it's almost, uh, I have a kind of awe at his, <laughs> you know, black is white type rhetoric that he just won't be budged from. The, 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 the poor president, you don't have the feeling, I mean, I, I think that he is sincere in his desire to he, he really does think he is Harry Truman, I believe. And he thinks that he is, you know, being pilloried now, but in the long run he will be vindicated for having taken this hard stand. And whenever there's something that involves any kind of conceptual issue, you can see him grappling for what he can say that, that, that connects to it. Uh, in a sense, the ones who are more agonizing to me in different ways are Condoleezza Rice and then Donald Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld, of course, for his attitude, which is, you know, to hell with you pissants, we know what we're doing. I'm going to find some way to, you know, is this a trick question? Yes, it is. Will I answer it? No, I will not. And Condoleezza Rice, there's a sort of sophistry to her. She, she, she must know better than what she's been saying. Of all these people, she has to know better than what she's been saying over the last four years. Colin Powell is a tragic figure among them. So I find them emotionally provocative in different ways. And, and Cheney is the one where I just am kind of most in awe. <laughs> okay, I just um uh I get mad at all of them. I mean, that's my my first one. And I also I want to cry because this is this is real death. This is real blood. This is real brain injury. This is real dismemberment. I mean, and and they just don't seem to get it. And you know, Harry Truman, if if Bush thinks he's Harry Truman, why doesn't he actually do the work that Harry Truman did? Yeah. You know, yeah, Harry, Harry Truman was a great student of history. Harry Truman, you know, Harry Truman never went to college. He didn't go to, to Yale and Harvard Business School, but his study was lined with all these, you know, Greek uh, histories and biographies of all the, the, the great leaders. And uh, we hear that, that George Bush is reading what Camus or something. What, isn't that the report this summer? I think it was Camus, but I mean, you know, he wasn't. That's another thing. They just, I mean, you know, that he doesn't. You know, like last summer, it was like the history of salt. You know the president can't read the history of salt. <laughs> I mean, they, they just they make these book lists. Everything about this administration is fake, even that. Even and, the, and, you know, it's interesting to think about Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was not a great intellectual, but Ronald Reagan took ideas seriously. And, and I have a you know I did not agree with many of Ronald Reagan's policies. He did many things I think were were harmful to the world and the nation, and some that were good. But at least. He was a serious figure by comparison, and and it, it is the the historic tragedy is that George Bush believes I think that he is a serious figure, and and again I think that Harry he can't quite Churchill anymore quite, but I think he can in his own mind be Harry Truman, but the gap between just 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 the serious seriousness gap is one that does uh, stop my heart from time to time when I'm listening to him on press conferences. Well, now, you're very familiar, uh, obviously, with the history of the Future of Iraq project, which was a State Department uh, uh, look into the future plans before the war. 
uh, and David Phillips was part of that, and he wrote a thing about uh, Kanan Makia telling the president six weeks before. Are you aware, aware of what I'm talking oh, about? Oh, yes. The, the, uh, <laughs> you should know, Mr. So, uh, you want to tell the story or you want me to tell the story? You, you, are you, tell, you tell the story. You tell the story. You know, Makia, who was this great um, uh, Iraqi dissident intellectual and was very much in sort of the uh, reform Iraq as the linchpin to democracy camp before the war. He had written Republic of Fear about all the sort of nightmares of Saddam Hussein. And so he, it might have been the occasion of the Super Bowl or something like that. He was, in the, White House. He was, he was in the White House for some event six weeks before the war, and he was saying, uh, it came up in conversation, well, you know, Mr. President, there are actually these different kinds of Iraqis. You got your Sunnis, you got your Shiites, you got your Kurds, and, and uh, the, the President was allegedly saying, oh, you, you know, you don't say, uh, t- tell me more. Uh, this has now been officially denied, apparently under duress by Makia and all the rest. So of course, he knew there were different kinds of Iraqis, but he was telling the story for, for quite a while until <laughs> Makia was, until his uh, story was corrected. Yeah, and also, Peter Galbraith heard from there were three Iraqi exiles at that very Super Bowl party who and two of them confirmed this to Peter and I Peter told me who they are and I'm not allowed to say but all I can say is that uh, if if Kanan Makia is denying it now there probably is a reason and that is that he, you know, he depends on uh, help from the administration. But but the point of this is, this is a president who was told if you break it, you own it, and wasn't curious enough, and wasn't hardworking enough. So let's say you're not curious. Well, then suck it up and do the reading, Mr. President. He wasn't curious enough to know that Iraq was made up of Sunnis, Shias, and Kurds six weeks before the invasion. Uh, If you're going to invade a country, you really should know who lives there. The chef prepares a special menu for your delight, oh my. Tonight you fly so high up in the vanilla sky. Your life is fine, it's sweet and sour, unbearable, great. National correspondent for the Atlantic Monthly Magazine. We're talking about his award-winning cover stories about the Iraq War that are now collected in a new book, Blind into Baghdad. People have described you as the most prescient voice on the Iraq War. Your articles have been able to look around corners, I think, better than any other consistent series of publications in the country, and I think everybody looks at that. But in the beginning, why did you ever think that this might be a good idea? Well, that's, that's a fair and perceptive question. But it was when I started doing reporting for this first article called The 51st State, which was published in the fall of 2002, I thought, wait a minute, this is just, this is crazy. And in a way, it has very strong analogies to the Vietnam War, that if it were possible to prevent communist tyrannies on the whole were a bad thing, if it were possible to prevent one from expanding, that would be fine. But it was, in practical terms, not possible for the U.S. to do, and that should have been realized from the beginning. And as soon as you think of what it would actually involve, to commit military forces, not Arabic-speaking, not Islamic, in the middle of tremendous ethnic tensions and corruption and all the rest. It just seemed like like a fool's errand. Like- Your article about the 51st state, kind of the point of that article is that if we did go into Iraq, at the end of it, we'd have to treat Iraq as if it were a 51st state because we would have destroyed all the political infrastructure, all the physical infrastructure, and the Iraqis would have nobody to look to for help to rebuild their society than us. And it would be basically what Colin Powell said from the beginning, is that if you break it, you own it, that we're going to have to be rebuild this country. One of the interesting things you, points you make in your book is that the strongest advocates of preemptive attack within the government and the press had not served in the military, mm-hmm. and they had never been to Arab societies. And that military veterans and Arabists were generally dubs. You know, one of the most disturbing things to me about this war is how did we unlearn all of the lessons of Vietnam is that this is never going to happen again because we're an idealistic nation. 
we were trying to stop the growth of, of communism, and, and then it turned on us, and the one thing we had after 20 years and 50,000 people dead is that we'll never do this again. We understand now that this doesn't work. <laughs> so what happened? How did, we, how did we forget those lessons? The movie The Fog of War, I think there'll sometime be a remake of that involving the strategist for the Iraq uh, venture, and it probably will take you know, perhaps almost as long a time. It certainly will take the passage of this administration when people become freer to talk. And uh, there's a parallel version of that question, which I was, was asking in this book, which has really nagged me, which is why, if this venture was so crucial to the administration's vision, why they, were they so casual and reckless and half-assed about it, if you, if you, if you will? And, and for the country as a whole, it's, it's the lessons of a Vietnam question. And I think there was a combination of willful self-delusion and particular partisan hubris that made the administration do what it was going to do. And what I mean by hubris is this. If you look back over the last, say, 20 or 25 years, 30 years of difficult military adventures, the Bush administration could tell itself the problems all happened to the Democrats. In Vietnam under the Democrats and certainly Somalia and Kosovo and the Balkans, and they had convinced themselves that with their firmness, with their decisiveness, the transformation in Iraq would be like the transformation of Eastern Europe, like the Czech Republic or Poland, essentially effort-free. And I think they really believed that and they were fools and it was very smart people who talked themselves into this delusion like rumsfeld and wolfkowitz yeah which is a parallel to vietnam too we have you know again that's why the agony of robert mcnamara i think is a some kind of marker for what at some point we'll see maybe not rumsfeld who seems entirely unreflective but maybe wolfowitz maybe at some point wolfowitz will talk about how his vision turned to ashes I, I'm wondering if you read the article, the recent article, about how Rumsfeld gave ideological and loyalty tests to people who were being sent over to manage the aftermath of the war, including the, the $13 billion budget for Iraq's reconstruction put into the hands of, um, of a graduate of an evangelical college with no accounting experience, no business experience, but simply politically connected. I think there are two... There have been two moments in the last two or three months which have just dumbfounded me. One was Vice President Cheney's comment recently that if they had to do it over again, they would do everything exactly the same, which as soon as you think about it, you know, letting the looting go on for a month, making an argument entirely about WMD when they turn out not to be there, leaving ammo dumps unguarded and all the rest. So that was, that was dumbfounding. The other is the fact, flatly, that Donald Rumsfeld is still in his job. I mean, the, the bill of indictment about of malfeasance, misperformance, institutional failure, personal arrogance, and all the rest involving Donald Rumsfeld exceeds that of a public official you can easily think of who's stayed in this job. And it looks like he's going to be in there for the full eight years. And I don't, I don't know when the last time we had a defense secretary serve for, for eight years. And so this recent chapter, which also Tom Ricks talks about some in his book, Fiasco, and uh, Rajiv Chakashaharan from the Washington Post talks about in his book, it also is just, just appalling that, that you would have so little emphasis on actually doing the crucial work of repairing the society and just political payoffs. What happened to the press in America? Because that's one of I mean, there's a lot of institutions that failed in this endeavor. I would argue that none have failed us worse than the press because they, they just didn't seem to be there. I agree. And I think that, you know, it, in a way, it's, a, it's a, a tie for last place among the press and, and our representative political institutions and, of course, the administration in, in performing badly. And I think this is going to take a long time for all of us in, in the media, you know, you and me and everybody else, to, to, to figure out. Here would be two hypotheses. It mattered that the capital of the media, that is New York City, was the main target of attack on 9-11 because a lot of press people were, I think, radicalized by that into sort of giving the administration more of the benefit of the doubt than they might have otherwise. I'm having, you know, there were a whole bunch of, of liberal hawks before the war. The New Yorker magazine had a pro-war editorial shortly before the war, so there may have been some spillover of that. Also, the fragmentation of our media world, where each person has his own set of facts, his own set of information, his own blogs to go to, meaning there's nobody with a sort of central source of authority, means that you know you can have broadcasts about this or that problem, and the Atlantic can do these stories, and other people can't, and they, they don't seem to reach people who don't already agree. And that, that is a real problem for the democracy, and I think it's affected the way these war decisions have been carried out. And finally, what about the military? How can we organize a military that won't kind of go along with these kind of adventures? Well, you know, weirdly, uh, let me give you a, a – uh, it's not exactly good news, bad news, but two, two different trends. 
Um, on the one hand, I think the very top levels of the military really did go along to a way excessive degree with, with the, uh, the wishes of the administration. I think um, from people, say, at the colonel level on down, there's a lot of concern and even disdain about the very, very top members. And I'm thinking, for example, of uh, General Myers, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and even Tommy Franks, who were sort of... Paul, Tommy, Tommy Franks for basically thinking his job was done as soon as he... Yes. Exactly, and then for speaking at the Republican convention after that. And so the very top level is seen as being just compliant with administration wishes. So, so that is a real level of concern from within the military. I think there's two Vietnam-type concerns that, that are, they have inside. One is the sort of compliance at the very top level. The other is the way the whole institution has been stretched so badly. Weirdly, the military is now essentially the peace party in the United States. The main force against invading Iran, based on my reporting, is the U.S. military. They realize it would just be a disaster to have any kind of military uh, interventions in Iran. So I think the military, it has a lot of very shrewd analysts who understand the pressures and the difficulties they're, they're under. But at the very top level, it's been uh, more political generals than military generals. One of the things that strikes me, and I'm not a pacifist, and I believe you know, that our military should be deployed for the purpose of, de- of protecting the world against nuclear proliferation. It was a credible threat prior mm-hmm. to the Iraq war that could have brought Iran and North Korea to the negotiating tables, but now we have you know, exposed ourselves to paper tiger. The impacts of this war on just global instability have been really beyond measure. Boy, I, I, I agree. And one of the chapters in this, this book of mine is called The Lost Year, about what happened in 2002 when the need to respond to the 9-11 attacks became the need to invade Iraq. And if you think of all the things the U.S. could have done instead, which include bearing down on Iran and North Korea. Iran and North Korea have just used these couple of years to accelerate their, their own programs, to know that the U.S. is tied down and can't really do anything about them. And also they've learned the lesson that, that if you don't have a nuclear weapon, as Iraq didn't, you can get invaded. So they want to get a nuclear weapon as, as soon as they can. So the, the opportunity cost, as well as all of the sins of commission, are going to be with us for a very long time. My guest is Senator Byron Dorgan. He's the chair of the Senate Democratic Policy Committee, and they're conducting oversight hearings, thankfully, on uh, the excesses of this administration and the war in Iraq. I want to take two disparate pieces of information and match them up. Before the break, you said that an elementary school teacher had to pay for body armor Mm -hmm. because her son didn't have any, and we taxpayers are paying for embroidered hand towels. That's right. Embroidered, rather, with... uh the contracting company on it. But something doesn't compute here. Did you hear $45 for a case of Coca-Cola? Or how about ordering big screen TVs for the troops uh, to watch the Super Bowl, but the big screen TV never gets to the troops, it gets to Halliburton's uh, executives? I mean, the list is endless. And this comes just uh, two days ago. I had a woman who worked for Halliburton in Iraq who was in charge of um, the recreation halls and other things, and they charged by the number of troops that used those halls. She said they were inflating the number by fivefold to increase the money they were sucking out of the government. And she put it down in writing and went to her supervisors. And you know what happened to her? They put her under guard. Yes, four civilian guards. And uh, the evening that she reported this, and the next morning, she was escorted to a plane and put on a plane and thrown out of Iraq. That's actually, what you get. I actually just did read about that. and, and it, So let me speak to that. What can be done now? You've had 10 hearings. You're going to have more conducting hearings through December, correct? That's right. What do you hope we can actually finally achieve in terms of calling these people to account for well, this behavior? Well, there, there are two things. First of all, they are resulting in inspector general investigations. 
which Great. is important. Second, um, we are trying to force this administration, and we, we already have succeeded to some extent, stop giving these large no-bid sole source contracts to friendly companies. The top civilian employee at the Corps of Engineers spoke out. She said, this is the most unbelievable abuse in granting contracts since my uh, service in Congress. And she she became the highest contracting official in the Corps of Engineers for speaking out in opposition to what the good old boy network was doing in granting these contracts. She was demoted. Now, that's a subject of legal issues in the Pentagon at the moment. But, you know, you don't have to look very far. We get calls from whistleblowers. Rory, a man named Rory, was uh, a food service supervisor in Iraq. He said, you know, uh, we would get food in uh, with date stamps uh, expired. This shouldn't be served beyond this date or best if used by this date. Uh, so the date stamps expired, and they'd show it to the supervisor. The supervisor said, well, it doesn't matter. Send it, feed it to the troops. doesn't matter. Mm. And also he, was, he said, we were told by our boss at Halliburton, that if government auditors came around or government inspectors came around, if you talk to them, you're fired. I mean, that's what's going on. It is the most unbelievable waste, fraud, and abuse, I believe, that has happened in the history of this country. And it is fundamentally un-American. Absolutely. I held hearings about the Custer Battles Corporation, two guys that showed up in Iraq with nothing, decided they wanted to get in on some of this. Uh, they ended up in a couple short years getting $100-plus million in contracts. One of them was to provide security at the Baghdad airport. Uh, there were no airplane flights at that point, but they were providing security. Among the things they did is they took the forklift trucks off the airport, took them to a warehouse, repainted them blue, brought them back, and sold them to us. It's unbelievable when you take a I, I tell you what, it, it angers me. I mean, it makes me sick to see this sort of waste. And I would expect the Secretary of Defense and others to be as angry, and they're not. And that's what bothers me the most. Where's the outrage? Where's the outrage? I also have noted, and I think there was a Washington Post article really uh, that went into some depth on this, that some of the people who were sent over by this administration with Paul Bremer were completely unqualified for the jobs they had, right. the sort of Iraq versions of Michael Brown. Have you been discovering that as well as you've been going through these yes. hearings? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the problem as well. They, this was all about uh, cronyism. You know, pick out somebody that was loyal. Uh, you know, they had a, a 20-something-year-old trying to set up the uh, stock exchange. Stock exchange, you know, right. No know. background in finance whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, it's just unbelievable. When you, you scratch your head and wonder, what could they have been thinking of? All of us want the same things for our country. We want our country to do well. We want the money that we spend, whether it's in support of our troops or the money we spend to uh, to help recovery, or for, whether it's in Iraq or in this country. We, you know, we want things to go right and to do well. and to, But... I tell you what, when, when I read what this administration has done, and they've done it under the nose of Congress, a Congress controlled by their own party, who they know will not hold oversight hearings, I think at some point the American people are going to look at this and say, this is unbelievable, and we're not going to put up with it anymore. Well, let me ask you about the American people, because many of us were surprised that they were willing to stay the course mm -hmm. uh, in 2004. What's your sense now of the mood of the American people? Obviously, we're 47 days away from an election. Do you think finally some of this information is breaking through to people, or are we still at that wall? And we're seeing some of these numbers. The president going out there again talking about how the war in Iraq is part of our national security. What is the perception in your judgment of, of the voters? I, I wish I knew, and I wish I was the kind of expert who could tell you. The people who think they know don't know. I, you know, my own sense is this. If the American people go into the voting booth this year and think about what they have lived through with this administration and then ask the question, have we had enough of this? The answer is yes, hell yes. I mean, That's this, the Newt Gingrich line, actually. Had well, enough. it's actually it's actually a line from the 1940s, if you had enough, are you fed up? Boy, when you look at what we face domestically, and health care costs going through the roof, energy policy and tatters, um, we're going to borrow over nearly $600 billion next year in budget policy. Now the president says, well, the deficit's coming down. We're going to borrow uh, almost $600 billion. Our trade deficit's going to be nearly $800 billion. Our foreign policy is in tatters. We've got a mess around the world. I mean, do we want more of this? The answer, I think, ought to be no, of course not. We need to change direction. 
Well, that's what we say on this program every night. We're counting down, actually, Senator, for mm-hmm. the next 47 days. And every day, we're trying to remind people of what the stakes are in this election. You've written a great book called Take This Job and Ship It mm-hmm. about trade. The subtitle is How Corporate Greed and Braindead Politics Are Selling Out America. There's something I was really just, and I, I knew some of this, but you spell it out in this book. Let me just quote from it. We're running a trade deficit of over $700 billion a year, the biggest in the history of the world. We've lost over 3 million jobs that have been moved overseas in just the past five years. Now, here's what is so striking. The Bank of Korea holds $200 billion of our currency. Mm-hmm. You write that the Bank of Japan holds $800 billion of our currency. The Chinese holds $750 billion of our currency. Taiwan holds $250 billion of our currency. They are our largest creditors, and they can call that in. Is there not a moment at which they decide that they don't want to continue supporting our economy? Are we not vulnerable to that as a policy matter? But, you know, the other thing they can do with that is simply buy part of our country, holding stocks, bonds, currency. We're selling part of our country every single day, $2 billion a day. This is the selling of America piece by piece. Um, In the book, I note just for fun that uh, the Chinese now have bought Whammo Corporation. You know what Whammo is? Wasn't that the kids' corporation? That's it. That's it. Whammo. uh, It's Frisbees, Frisbees Super Bowl, Hula Hoops, and Slip and Slide. You know, I mean, I, look, I don't. Next, it'll be Milwaukee beer they buy. I mean, it's one thing to. <laughs> I love my frisbee. I, yeah, I, you know, I love my fruit of the loom underwear. It's gone too. You know, uh, Mexican uh, food. That's Fig Newton cookies. They went to Mexico. So, look, over half of our trade debt is held by two countries, China and Japan. We've got real problems here, and you can't find anybody. And, and I include some Democrats in this. But mostly the blame is at the feet of this administration. Uh, you can't find anybody that's very interested in this. In fact, many of the folks in this administration think these trade deficits are a sign of American strength. I mean, I wish they'd go find a school to attend for a while to relearn some of these lessons. But they the think problem it's is a when sign they of go strength. to school, they read my pet goat. That's right. That's right. Uh, and and they're not studying uh, economics. Senator, speaking of energy policy, which you touched on a moment ago, Senator Feingold was on in an earlier part of this program. I am just fascinated that gas prices are going down right now. Now, Mm -hmm. I said to someone six months ago, and I'm not an economist, and I'm not an energy policy expert and don't purport to be, but I said, bank on it. They will be going down Mm -hmm. in September and October. They will have been even higher than they had been over the summer. And now I'm not Nostradamus either. How is that possible? This is not an accident. <laughs> Just can you explain it to me? No, not very well. Nobody knows exactly how they went up, and nobody knows how they're coming down. But isn't it interesting the reverse psychology here? In 2004, the average price of a barrel of oil was forty dollars. Forty dollars a barrel. Two years ago. Yeah. At that price, the major integrated oil companies had the highest profits in their history. Right. At an average of forty dollars a barrel. All right. Now it 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 went up fifty percent to sixty dollars. Then went up to over seventy. Now it's back to sixty. And all the way into work this morning on the car radio, they're talking about how wonderful it is that oil is only at sixty dollars a barrel. That's fifty percent above the price at which the major integrated oil companies two years ago made the highest profits in their history. It's unbelievable to me what they have done to condition the thinking process of all the media and even consumers. Isn't this wonderful? Well, sure, it's wonderful it's going down, but it should never have gone up there, and it ought not be where it is today because at this level it's higher than is justified. Well, what people are banking on, and and unfortunately they've been successful in doing this, is that people are so grateful for small favors when it comes down just a little bit that they are grateful and that is as you say it's the psychology of this kind of effort and that's you know that goes back to propaganda that's how you do it the major integrated oil companies there are two groups that need to be eternally thankful to the american consumer one is the royal kingdom and saudi arabia and elsewhere i mean we have a revenue sharing that they can extract from us they're getting very very wealthy they've been wealthy but we're adding to their wealth the second are the major oil companies, the eight major oil companies, the integrated companies, the largest ones. Now, they all have two names now because of all the mergers, you know, right. Phillips, Conoco, Exxon, Mobil. Um, they have $59 billion in cash at the moment, so they're hoarding cash. Second, they're buying back stock with their profits rather than sinking it into the ground to look for more oil. And um, in addition to that, they are uh, 
drilling for oil on Wall Street, as Business Week said, drilling for oil on Wall Street, which is the search for mergers. And, of course, there is no oil on Wall Street. So the oil industry, I'm sure, is eternally grateful for this forced revenue sharing from the American taxpayers' pockets to their treasury. But I think it's wrong. And, uh, you know, I want the oil industry to do well, but I'm telling you, this is way beyond doing well. Well, if they have that much cash, maybe we can get ExxonMobil to buy back Fruit of the Loom. That's it. We can we can bring it back from China. We can, we, you know, our our oil companies can own Whammo and solve our problem. Do you remember the television commercials for Fruit of the Loom? The dancing dancing grapes. grapes yeah. yeah, there was a guy that was dressed as white grapes, a guy that was dressed or green grapes, and a guy that was dressed as red grapes. I'd, it'd be kind of fun to track down who actually took money dancing as grapes, but they danced right out of America. <laughs> you know, no more Fruit of the Loom underwear in America. They're all gone. I didn't want to admit this publicly, but I was once a dancing grape. And, uh, were you really? Uh, no, yeah, I wasn't. Fruit but of the but it, 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 it would look right on a resume. Moving to the country, I'm going to eat a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country I'm gonna eat me a lot of peaches I'm moving to the country I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches I'm moving to the country I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches You know, after doing jury trial work for about 20 years, I've learned a lot about the phenomena that I like to refer to as insight osmosis. It takes place in settings where the other side, usually corporate or insurance defense lawyers, make every effort to fabricate, deceive, and distort the facts of a case to the point that you begin believing there's no way a jury will have the capacity to really get to the truth. Over the years, I've seen the very best corporate defense falsification plans elegantly played off for juries in such a way that the truth is almost unrecognizable, whether it's asbestos cases, product liability cases, pharmaceutical cases, or medical malpractice cases. I've seldom seen a corporate lapdog attorney unwilling to abandon the truth entirely if their soulless corporate client is willing to pay the right price. Sometimes that type of well-honed deceit works, but most of the time, inside osmosis takes over and a fair, reasonable jury is going to punish that corporation and their amoral lawyers for the lies they string together. In the end, truth fights its way to the surface like water soaking its way through a parched desert sand. I got to tell you, inside osmosis, it's playing itself out in American politics in 2006. A poll that was conducted just last week tells us that 76% of Americans polled said they have something to be angry about in the direction this country's heading. In fact, 60% surveyed said government policies need a major overhaul. The Republican spin machine that Karl Rove and company have in place is simply the best that has ever been assembled in modern political history. There's no lie that can't be spun as righteous truth. There simply is no level of guile, fraud, and deception that the GOP misinformation machine is unwilling to push on Americans. And just like in a jury trial, sometimes it works. In fact, in the last six years, that well-organized GOP effort has shined a light on just how helpless the Democrats are to fight back. But even in spite of chronic lingering institutional incompetence that plagues the Democrats, intuitive inside osmosis is surfacing to the point that Americans get it. They don't trust their government in general, and George Bush in particular. They may be three years late, but now they understand that Bush lied his way into Iraq and killed almost 3,000 American soldiers in the process. They sense that our economy is in shambles regardless of the words that GOP leadership tries to sell. Maybe they don't know the statistics that 46 million Americans have no health insurance or that 50 million jobs are going to be shipped out of the country, outsourced, within the next 20 years. And they may not know the specifics about how global warming is going to melt the Glacier National Park by the year 2030. 
and they don't have the specific analysis, probably they don't have a powerful analytical understanding about how close places like the Mideast and North Korea move us towards nuclear disaster. But you know what? 76% of Americans polled last week say they were angry about something taking place in America. And in the same way a jury punishes a corrupt criminal corporation when they see through the lies, Americans will, I promise you they will, punish this new spooky GOP that's never seen real true-to-life inside osmosis at work. The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info. tonight a special comment about lying. While the leadership in Congress has self-destructed over the revelations of an unmatched and unrelieved march through a cesspool, while the leadership inside the White House has self-destructed over the revelations of a book with a glowing red cover, the President of the United States, unbowed, undeterred, and unconnected to reality, has continued his extraordinary trek through our country, rooting out the enemies of freedom, the Democrats. Yesterday, at a fundraiser for an Arizona congressman, Mr. Bush claimed, quote, 177 of the opposition party said, you know, we don't think we ought to be listening to the conversations of terrorists. The hell they did. 177 Democrats opposed the president's seizure of yet another part of the Constitution. Not even the White House press office could actually name a single Democrat who had ever said the government shouldn't be listening to the conversation of terrorists. President Bush hears what he wants. Tuesday at another fundraiser in California. He had said that Democrats take a law enforcement approach to terrorism. That means America will wait until we're attacked again before we respond. Mr. Bush fabricated that, too. And evidently he has begun to fancy himself as a mind reader. If you listen closely to some of the leaders of the Democratic Party, the president said at yet another fundraiser Monday in Nevada, it sounds like they think the best way to protect the American people is wait until we're attacked again. The president does not just hear what he wants, he hears things that only he can hear. It defies belief that this president and his administration could continue to find new unexplored political gutters into which they can wallow. Yet they do. It is startling enough that such things could be said out loud by any president at any time in this nation's history. Rhetorically, this is about an inch short of Mr. Bush accusing Democratic leaders Democrats, the majority of Americans who disagree with his policies, of treason. But it is the context that truly makes the head spin. Just 25 days ago, on the fifth anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, this same man spoke to this nation and insisted, quote, we must put aside our differences and work together to meet the test that history has given us. Mr. Bush, this is a test you have already failed. If your commitment to put aside differences and work together is replaced in the span of merely three weeks by claiming your political opponents prefer to wait to see this country attacked again and by spewing fabrications about what they have said, then the questions your critics need to be asking are no longer about your policies. They are instead solemn and even terrible questions about your fitness to fulfill the responsibilities of your office. No Democrat, sir, has ever said anything approaching the suggestion that the best means of self-defense is to wait until we're attacked again. 
no critic, no commentator, no reluctant Republican in the Senate has ever said anything that any responsible person could even have exaggerated into the slander you spoke in Nevada on Monday night, nor the slander you spoke in California on Tuesday, nor the slander you spoke in Arizona on Wednesday, nor whatever is next. You have dishonored your party, sir. You have dishonored your supporters. You have dishonored yourself. But tonight the stark question we must face is, why? Why has the ferocity of your venom against the Democrats now exceeded the ferocity of your venom against the terrorists? Why have you chosen to go down in history as the president who made things up? In less than one month, you have gone from a flawed call to unity to this clarion call to hatred of Americans by Americans. If this is not the simply the most shameless example of the rhetoric of rhetorical political hackery, then it would have to be the cry of a leader crumbling under the weight of his own lies. We have, of course, survived all manner of political hackery of every shape, size, and party. We will have to suffer it for as long as the republic stands. But the premise of a president who comes across as a compulsive liar is nothing less than terrifying. A president who, since 9-11, will not listen, is not listening, and thanks to Bob Woodward's most recent account, evidently has never listened. A president who, since 9-11, so hates or fears other Americans that he accuses them of advocating deliberate inaction in the face of the enemy. A president who, since 9-11, has savaged the very freedoms he claims to be protecting from attack. Attack by terrorists, or by Democrats, or by both. It's now impossible to find a consistent thread of logic as to who Mr. Bush believes the enemy truly is. But if we know one thing for certain about President Bush, it is this. This president, in his bullying of the Senate last month, in his slandering of the Democrats this month, has shown us that he believes whoever the enemies actually are, they are hiding themselves inside a dangerous cloak called the Constitution of the United States of America. How often do we find priceless truth in the unlikeliest of places? I tonight quote not Jefferson nor Voltaire, but Cigar Aficionado magazine. On September 11, 2003, the editor of that publication interviewed General Tommy Franks, at that point just retired from his post as Commander-in-Chief of U.S. Central Command of CENTCOM. And amid his quaint defenses of the then nagging absence of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and the continuing freedom of Osama bin Laden, General Franks said some of the most profound words of this generation. He spoke of the worst thing that can happen to this country. First, quoting, a massive casualty-producing event somewhere in the Western world. It may be in the United States of America. Then the general continued, the Western world, the free world, loses what it cherishes most, and that is freedom and liberty we've seen for a couple of hundred years in this grand experiment that we call democracy. It was this super-patriotic warrior's fear that we would lose that most cherished liberty because of another attack, one, again quoting General Franks, that causes our population to question our own constitution and to begin to militarize our country in order to avoid a repeat of another mass casualty-producing event, which, in fact, then begins to potentially unravel the fabric of our Constitution. And here we are, the fabric of our Constitution being unraveled anyway. Habeas corpus neutered, the rights of self-defense now as malleable and impermanent as clay, a president stifling all critics by every means available, and when he runs out of those by simply lying about what they said or felt. And all this even without the dreaded attack. General Franks, like all of us, loves this country and believes not just in its values, but in its continuity. He has been trained to look for threats to that continuity from without. He has, perhaps, been as naive as the rest of us in failing to keep close enough vigil on the threats to that continuity from within. Secretary of State Rice first cannot remember urgent cautionary meetings with counterterrorism officials before 9-11. Then, within hours of that lie, her spokesman confirms the meetings in question. Then she dismisses those meetings as nothing new, yet insists she wanted the same cautions expressed to Secretaries Ashcroft and Rumsfeld. Mr. Rumsfeld, meantime, has been unable to accept the most logical and simple influence of the most noble and neutral of advisors. He and his employer insist they rely on the generals in the field, but dozens of those generals have now come forward to say how their words, their experiences, have been ignored. And, of course, inherent in the Pentagon's war-making functions is the regulation of presidential war lust, 
enacting that regulation should include everything up to symbolically wrestling the chief executive to the floor if necessary. Yet, and it is Pentagon transcripts that now tell us this, evidently Mr. Rumsfeld's strongest check on Mr. Bush's ambitions was to get someone to excise the phrase mission accomplished out of the infamous Air Force carrier speech of May 1st, 2003, even while the same empty words hung on a banner over the president's shoulder. And the vice president, he is a chilling figure, still unable, it seems, to accept the conclusions of his own party's leaders in the Senate that the foundations of his public positions are made out of sand. There were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, but he still says so. There was no link between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda, but he still says so. And thus gripping firmly these figments of his own imagination, Mr. Cheney lives on in defiance and spreads around him and before him darkness, like some contagion of fear. They are never wrong and they never regret. Admirable in a French torch singer, cataclysmic in an American leader. Thus the sickening attempt to blame the Foley scandal on the negligence of others or the Clinton era, even though the Foley scandal began before the Lewinsky scandal. Thus last month's enraged attacks on this administration's predecessors about Osama bin Laden, a projection of their own negligence in the immediate months before 9-11. Thus, the terrifying attempt to hamstring the fundament of our freedom, the Constitution, a triumph for al-Qaeda, one the terrorists could not hope to achieve on their own with a hundred 9-11s. And thus, worst of all, perhaps, these newest lies by President Bush about Democrats choosing to await another attack and not listen to the conversations of terrorists. It is the terror and the guilt within your own heart, Mr. Bush, that you redirect at others who simply wish for you to temper your certainty with counsel. It is the failure and the incompetence within your own memory, Mr. Bush, that leads you to demonize those who might merely quote to you the pleadings of Oliver Cromwell. I beseech you, in the bowels of Christ, think it possible you may be mistaken. It is not the Democrats whose inaction in the face of the enemy you fear, sir. It is your own before 9-11 and, and you alone know this, perhaps afterwards. Mr. President, these new lies go to the heart of what it is that you truly wish to preserve. It is not our freedom, nor our country. Your actions against the Constitution give irrefutable proof of that. You want to preserve one political party's power, and obviously you will sell this country out to do it. These are lies about the Democrats piled atop lies about Iraq, piled atop lies about your preparations for al-Qaeda. To you, perhaps, they feel like the weight of a million centuries as crushing, as immovable, but they are not. If you add more lies to them, you cannot free yourself and us from them. But if you stop, if you stop fabricating quotes and stop building straw men and stop inspiring those around you to do the same, you may yet liberate yourself and this nation. Please, sir, do not throw this country's principles away because your lies have made it such that you can no longer differentiate between the terrorists and the critics. Good night and good luck. Thanks for listening, everybody. So I've been um, probably to an unhealthy degree distraught over this whole um, Bush comma quote. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I, there was a whole episode that I made about it. It's just me talking that everybody hated because uh, they like to hear the professionals talk. But um, I basically laid out um, the only argument I've ever heard or seen by anyone uh, that said that Bush didn't mean what everybody says he means. And that when he said that when the full history of Iraq is written, it will just look like a comma. But the quote is taken so horribly out of context that everyone completely disregards what he said before that, which was 100% referring to the elections in Iraq. And, and so, and therefore, when he says the comma quote, he's clearly referring back to his previous statement about the elections and nothing in the world is clearer to me than that and I 
So I, I was worried for, for just a minute when I heard on the radio that he had said it again. And I thought, oh, maybe I was wrong. Maybe, you know, if he said it again and he's that much of an idiot, then maybe it, it really is what he meant. But no, he said it again and again he referred to the elections. So I was, I felt completely vindicated in that. But I've been wondering why I'm so concerned about this. And I realized that it's a much bigger issue having to do with miscommunication and, and, you know, not just, you know, from my personal experience, but, um, like I'm really concerned about the way we communicate now with, uh, instant messages and text messages and, you know, shorthand and copy paste style, uh, communications. Uh, I think a lot is getting missed in the transfer and, I'm really kind of wondering how much better our media system is. You know, I, I've, I've kind of talked about this before, about the, as the media gets dispersed over a large number of people uh, who are doing kind of individual journalism instead of uh, every everyone watching the same newscast at night, that everyone will migrate to their own way of thinking. And, uh, and so it's like, we're just living in two completely different media worlds, which doesn't give us very much to talk about if we ever come together, because we don't, I mean, we, we don't even have our news sources in common. So how can we, uh, you know, how could our views be in common? How could our perspectives be in common? And how can we really discuss them? But now I'm worried that when we discuss whatever we discuss, I think that our points are just uh, probably getting missed more often than we have any idea of. So this comma comment has devolved all the way from this is the worst thing Bush has ever said and he's so insensitive to really debating the meaning behind it. And there's no one on the side of you're all wrong and that's not what he meant except for like Tony Snow. He's the only one I've heard who said, no, that's not what he meant and you're not even close to being correct. But it's devolved into like secret code words going to the religious right and, you know, some old quote about don't put a comma where, or, or don't put a period where God put a comma which is apparently a phrase used by a specific uh, branch of the Christian faith that's a very progressive branch and very anti-war and anti-Bush. And so it's, the whole thing's just preposterous. But this whole debate is completely centered on a false premise. And... Um, yeah, I'm I'm really discouraged with all of this. Um, I I don't even know what to think about it. Actually, I I've kind of been sitting here for a long time thinking about what I've been thinking, and uh, and I don't even know what to do about it. I, you know, I don't have a megaphone large enough to get anybody to listen to me, and I think that enough people have heard that quote taken out of context and used incorrectly that. Uh, that they are completely convinced of its validity and would have no reason to believe anyone else and would probably accuse me of being a, you know, a Republican plant uh, trying to argue the other side. But I don't know. So I'm really upset about it. I don't really know what to do about it. But I'd like your feedback. If if you want to go to botlcommunity.com, there will be a thread there about uh, media and communication and any ideas about how to more effectively communicate through the internet. I mean, you know, I'm one of those guys who I don't abbreviate anything. I spell everything out. I use all the punctuation as properly as I can um, because I don't want to be misunderstood ever. And uh, so your thoughts on that would be 
greatly appreciated. And if you do think I'm wrong, let me know that because, I mean, with with every single other person talking about this, uh, not agreeing with me, it kind of makes me feel like I'm crazy. But everybody who responded to the last show where I talked about this, everybody agreed with me. So I don't know what that means really, but, um, you know, maybe I'm onto something and maybe I'm the one who's out of it. So just let me know what you think. You can also leave comments directly at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. And uh, I will speak to you again tomorrow. Have a good one, everybody. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Just a fond farewell to a friend